Today, my guest on Lunch with Lyle is my uncle, Tom Fredericks. He speaks of retirement and his very full career as a professional ballet dancer in New York and Switzerland, marketing and tour director for the Houston Ballet for 10 years, and most recently professionally wearing mini hats, but basically helping to run the Santa Cruz-based Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music for over 20 years, including its tremendous transformation from a bankrupt organization when he started into the world-renowned festival it is now. Tom did his undergraduate at Notre Dame and holds an MBA from Stanford Business School. And here now is my conversation with my uncle and friend, Tom Fredericks. And you said that you don't want to wear headphones? No. Okay. Well, then we won't. No, I had, um, I have shingles. What was it like to have shingles? I I still have them. I'm in, it's like a two or three week bout and I'm on my, I finished second week. So now I have all these little bumps with scabs on them. It's chicken pox. It's, was it, has it been painful? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've heard them that they're extremely painful, but you're speaking about them so nonchalantly. I, I question. Usually the outbreak is on your torso mm-hmm. and mine are on my scalp. The virus lives dormant when you have chicken pox. When you are over chicken pox, the virus is dormant. And it's in the nerve tissues. So my outbreak is right around my spinal, you know, this the back of the neck where the spinal cord goes up into the brain. Yeah. It's right there because there's a lot of nerve tissues there, I guess. So it felt like a helmet around my head right? and a constant headache. I know what people what people who have migraines now, what they live through. So does it not feel like a skin thing? It feels more like a whole head thing? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I wasn't even so much aware of little bumps because I can't see them. They're in the scalp. But they're very sensitive. So when I try to lay down my head, then I know. How have you been sleeping then? Well, you, when you get it diagnosed, when I got it diagnosed, it, there's an antiviral drug that speeds it along slightly. And then an ointment that's just basically neosporin, but a higher level of the agent that's in neosporin to soothe the inflammation. Yeah. So basically my head is, my that portion of my head was covered in a Vaseline type. <laughs> <laughs> so I slept on a towel. But it didn't hurt severely to it, sleep it on didn't, it? No, I could fall asleep. One of the things I've been living with is this idea that pain is inevitable, but suffering is not. And I thought, oh, this is a good example because it's constant pain. You must have, you had this experience, I'm sure, with your back in the surgeries. And then I thought, well, I can't make the pain go away, but I, I don't need to suffer around it, is what I told myself. And So how'd you go about feeling the pain and not well, suffering. Well, I knew you were going to ask that question, so I'm trying to think of how to explain what that is. Just indulging myself. I could still be physical. There was a period where I would just lay in bed for hours because of the fatigue from the disease. But when I didn't feel fatigued, then I would get up and go out and walk. I took ballet class with Virginia a couple times during those 10, 12 days. It worked fine. It gets, something happens to me when I get physical. 
So I did a lot of physical things when I could felt like I could. Yeah. Made a point of it. And then when I couldn't do that, then I would just get all cozy and get the tablet set up on my stomach and watch stream things like Ozark. Things that are simple or things that are hard? Simple. Yeah. <laughs> no, so taking care of myself. Yeah. Just indulging in comfort and care. And it works. Worked for me. Yeah. I mean, I kind of get that technique in the sense that I think part of it is not to focus on it as a suffering experience. There's a mental state you're doing. Yeah, you separate the two. The pain is the pain. It doesn't need to drag other things along with it because the other things are separate. And so just kind of, I just kind of look for a whoa. Like I would, if I had the energy, I'd go to one of my favorite cafes and have something, just treat myself. Just so to have that experience and it's treat the yourself experience well. experience of it, treating yeah. yourself, yeah. yeah. It adds a dimension that calms and soothes. And as a result, makes the pain go into the background. The pain goes into the background. That's a good way to think about yeah. it. Yeah. It's Do not the prominent thing that you're doing. It's not the thing that's driving you crazy. Did you lose it at any point? Did you break down and just couldn't handle anymore? Just once. Just once I remember I was really tired. I was hungry. I was probably angry a little bit. And I named it. I saw it. Those things. And that's another thing I've been doing is I've learned the power of seeing the emotional currents in me and then describing what it is. Name it. And just that Doing that disarms it for me. What does it look like to name it? Well, I say, you're getting angry. And anger, anger is like a secondary emotion. There's something under it. So mm-hmm. like I said, well, what's under it? What's making you angry? And I don't remember anymore what was right, me right. angry. But it's just that quick exercise of saying you're angry. What's going on with that? What's under it? What's that about? And you think, oh... That was frustrating. And see, already I'm gone. Right. I'm out of that space. Right. Almost with curiosity. Curiosity is a big thing. I have another one since you used the word curiosity. Sure, sure. <laughs> Just generally speaking, I did you want to ask questions and conduct an interview? No, or you, you, you keep just, going. This is good. Okay. Because when we, you asked me to do this, the idea was for me to talk about aging. And I love talking about aging because I love aging. You do? I do. When I was heading towards retirement, like around 60, and I was at the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music, the festival was, was became a really solid organization with solid artistic leadership. And I was turning 60. So under the provisions of a grant proposal that I wrote, And we received the grant. One of the parts of it was succession planning for me and the artistic director, because we were both been there 20 some years at that point. And, but I was the most important person to figure out what comes next after me. And, and that gave me five years. There was a, there was a, date that I was going to retire. It was December 2012 in the grant proposal. (laughs) (laughs) And I did that. And 
I remember at first when we got the grant, it was a huge grant because <laughs> it covered a lot of things. That was just a very small part of it. It, I thought, wow, what did I just sign up for? I don't, I'm not ready to retire, <laughs> <laughs> especially now. Everything's going so great. And, uh, but sure enough, as time went on, as the years went by, like two years out, I could tell, wow. I am starting to really looking forward. This is getting to be really too hard for me because mm. the organization's doing well. And as a result, it takes a lot of energy to keep up with it. And at 63 at that point, I realized I don't have that energy. Mm. And that was the beginning of realizing I don't have that energy. You've not, always had a lot of energy. Not that I couldn't, oh yeah, not that I couldn't do it. It's just that I never thought about whether I could do it or not. Your mind? no. I always knew I could do it. And if you hadn't had that experience, it would have been a lot harder to leave, like having yeah, seen that in yourself. Yeah, that was a gift. And the whole thing was amazing for me because I didn't, it was not abrupt. It was very gradual, very mm -hmm. planned and, and well supported. Would you say that in general, you're more of a planner than a let things happen to no, you? No, I'm not. Oh. No, Virginia's a planner. Your wife? Uh -huh. Yeah, Clarissa's a planner. Your daughter? Uh-huh. I am not a planner. Interesting. Why would you need to be a planner? <laughs> surround, your, surround yourself with yeah, planners. Yeah, that's one of the lessons <laughs> I learned early in life is that, I'll tell you a quick story. I went to business school when I was 40. I forget. No. Some little uh, California school. What was it called? Stanford, oh, I right? Went to, yeah, I went to Stanford. <laughs> but, but I was 42, I think. I was one of the oldest people in the class. Although at Stanford, the business school, you basically have to go away and do something. You don't just go straight from undergraduate school. But usually you're late 20s, early 30s. Right. So I was a good 10 years older than that. But I remember I, it's very quantitative orientation to process of building strategy and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the core focus of that program is general managers, strategic planning and implementation and um, organizational behavior, things like that. Sure. And, uh, but here we are, we have to do these core courses before we get on to stuff that is more like what we would like to do. So the first year is just requirements and there's a lot of, a lot of quantitative work. In groups. Also, that's the other thing is everything is in groups. You never work alone. That makes sense. That's how businesses yeah, work. So I'd be sitting in the group and we'd be doing like a process problem where you're doing like production process um, management. And there's complex approaches to really doing remarkable prediction of how processes are going to work. Right. Manufacturing processes. Right. Making sure everything gets there it's on time to do the construction and all, and all the people get and so you, you work with cases and the, all the heads go down and the, the calculators are out at the time. Mm -hmm. And the HP calculator, with all the functions on it. And I, there was no way I could beat anybody else in that group. I found out. At the speed. Yeah, 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 soon enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was a ballet dancer. <laughs> <laughs> I never held one of these things before. And I remember very quickly, I just realized... I'll just sit back and wait for the person who's the fastest to give the group the answer. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be the person who's the fastest and give the group the answer because we're doing it in a group. Right. So I know what the process is. You're just faster at it than me. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a really good lesson of about 
Same thing with planning in our host household. It's already done. And, and it's interesting because in planning or even calculating, you really need one person to focus on it and think about it, or maybe a couple people that are interested. But the more you get people involved in it, the more complex the problem becomes. Well, and, and in this case, the tools that were being used, we're all, we all knew what the tool was and we were using yeah. the same uh, inputs and it's just most everybody could do it faster than I could. And I knew the tool better than I did. I could fumble my way through it. Do you think that you were bringing something else to the table that you had available because you weren't doing the calculation? Or in the planning situation, is your participating in the family not being the planner beneficial in some way? At that time, I had no idea. And it's only recently that I do have an idea. I can tell you another story because this is within the family when Shirley was part of the Walnut Commons construction process. Shirley is her wife's mother and my grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. And she was part of a group who were, there's 20 20 or 22 uh, investors who were going to build a commons for themselves where they each had an apartment and shared facilities within the complex. And they were, in order to get the construction loan, everybody had to pitch in tens of thousands of dollars. You had to make a major commitment in order to get the bank to provide the balance of the construction loan. So now she's a developer. Mm-hmm. Grandma Shirley is a developer in her, in her <laughs> 80s. And I, there was meetings that were every week for two years. Some weeks there was two meetings. And towards the end, there was three meetings. Wow. And they'd be in the evening, they'd be at least two hours, not too often past two hours. And they were all by consensus. Everything had all these decisions. Like, I know what a school door lock is now. It's a lock that only opens one way on one side of the door, because you have to decide whether you want a school door lock on that door or not. You're down to that kind of detail. Sure, sure. In these groups. And let me just say that... uh Consensus is a very difficult way to uh, govern. It's time-consuming. Yeah, I have the experience of that concrete. Yeah. And, but I, have, I don't have the experience of it because I would go to these meetings. Shirley was a participant, and I would take her to the meeting. I would pick her up, take her to the meeting, and bring her home. And I didn't feel... I was not part of the group. Right. I did not have an investment here. So I sat, they sat in a circle and I sat in a kind of unofficial second circle. And I would, I never said a single thing during the meeting ever for two years. And well into the second year, people would come and say, Tom, thank you for coming to these meetings. We so appreciate your being there. And they meant it. Sure. And I thought, wow, maybe they don't see that I never say anything. <laughs> Literally, I'm totally honest about this. Never. Do you know why they thanked you for being there? It's something about, at the time I thought it's something about being a witness. Hmm. Something about being a witness being there to hear that they're being heard by someone and just heard. That's a big thing in consensus. Like it's every, I do a lot, I've done a lot of nonprofits. I was talking Uh last night with my mom in an interview. We were talking about 
KOSP radio and I, Bonnie the other day when I spoke yeah. with her also about KOSP and Mount Community Theater and this idea of governing from this consensus idea that everybody needs to be on board and all that. A lot of those things are not about arguing. A lot of those things are about the person wanting to have their say and be heard by everybody and accepted. And then you move on. So it totally makes sense that someone that was only there receiving allows everybody to get that. Yeah, I was the person only <laughs> receiving. Yeah. And I remember there at the time, the original group had some professors who were near retirement. Mm-hmm. And this is part of their retirement um, plan. And they're all published. Their PhDs are all published. And right. I remember two of them, which I got to be friends with after the meetings. I was walking down the street and they said, Tom, you never say anything. And I said, no, I know. I said, I'm just fascinated by the group dynamics and everything. Because I really did pay attention. It wasn't like I was sitting there looking at my phone. I watched. And it was fascinating because of what you're the subject you were going to yeah. bring up about consensus, because yeah. I was witnessing a group working through every level of decision by consensus. Of how you're going to live and how you're going to build the houses together, yeah. of how and, you're going to live passing. When I was in business school, I found out I'm, I have, I get tremendous pleasure watching groups mm-hmm. and in that way. So I was just doing what I enjoyed. For me, it was like better than anything. <laughs> actually, I actually enjoyed it. That's the part I almost yeah. forgot. And, and they, they said, I just said, no, I just really enjoy it. I watch, I enjoy watching groups. And they said, oh, come on now, you're going to write a book, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I felt offended because <laughs> now I'm here. I yeah, I'm really I'm here. I'm really enjoying it. And I'm really, my own thing is to be there. That, that's been a theme of this podcast, this idea that you do something, what are you, whatever you do, it's people running things or, or doing art, whatever. And the engagement that some people bring to that is, oh, that means you could do this other thing. It's you're a, you're, you're a musical theater person. Okay, so you could be on Broadway. Or you're good at communicating with people, so you could be a senator. And instead of just accepting the thing the person's doing in that moment, there's this idea to make it be more or aim it in this direction for it to be different than it yeah. is. Yeah, I, I have another thing that I've been living with, actually this one for only about a week, is that we all um, have different ways of filling the world with life. And I really want to stick with those words because it's the only way, if I try to remember it differently, it doesn't come out the same. Filling the world with life. We all have different ways of filling the world with life. Because the reason I thought of that is because that's what I'm getting at. It was hard for the people in the group to see that I filled the room with life because of my intense interest on what was going on in the room. And I did that naturally. That wasn't, I wasn't trying to do that. So that's, one of the ways that I fill the world with life. I like to say world because it's a big infusion of life. It's not Mm -hmm. a small one, even though you do it totally naturally. But because it's totally naturally, it's totally honest and pure and big. (laughs) It's not an act or performance or a thing you're trying to do. It's it's just being. I'm, I'm not trying to write a book about this. Right. That would really diminish it, wouldn't it? Yeah. 
Then no, you have an ulterior motive. Everybody would say, oh, he's writing a book. That isn't what they felt. They felt being paid attention to. Do you think that experience of, well, that was 2012 and the retirement, how, no, that, how, how does that, the retirement and, uh, and doing that, what time frames are they together? Well, my first realization that I was really, that I'm aging and that I'm interested in it, knowing about it. That was 2010, and Shirley with Shirley passed in 2017, and she's been there for three years. So it's 2014, and then she was yeah 2012 is when she was starting to do those meetings, and um, so I was like right after I retired. That was one of the reasons why I could do it is because I was retired. Yeah, and so here you go. Why retirement is so wonderful? Because you can do that kind of thing. Because you can be the per. Because, what I learned fairly quickly, because I was able to retire slow on a plan. Yeah. It wasn't abrupt. I wasn't like left, now what? I was easing my way towards it. I also was easing my way towards the realization that I get to do anything I want. Right. And in my case, it isn't world traveler or anything, because I, I do that as a dancer. I had the best way to travel. I was performing in different places in the world with a company of dancers of which I was one. (laughs) So travel to me is not something I'm interested in. And that was good because that's, for me, that would have been a distraction to think, Mm -hmm. okay, now what's the first place I want to go? For me, it was more important to see that I get to be the person that I like because all through my adult life, there's always that, I always felt pressure to be the person I needed to be. And all of a sudden, there wasn't any person I needed to be. I didn't work in a job. I didn't have a daughter or children to raise. I didn't have to be numerous places on a schedule and no time to really connect with anybody, just move on to the next task of the day. I didn't have any of that. And to do all to do the other life, the the productive day to day of productive life with a job and a family and there's a lot of things you need to be. And I didn't have anything that I needed to be. And I thought, wow, I can just be the person I like. Cause often when I'd be the person I needed to be, I didn't like that person. And then of course with the stress that builds up around it, then I really could be a person I didn't like. And I got myself into trouble a couple of times, like for that reason, emotionally with people and relationships. And I thought, wow, I get to just be that person that I, that's in there that I know I like. When you were two years in and when you noticed that you were two years into the retirement plan and you noticed that you weren't keeping up to the lead, like if somebody could be in this position doing it differently, they might be doing a better job than you. At that point, what other things were you, like, was it a process of letting go the entire time? Or at some point were you like, okay, I'm done with this. Let's get out of here. How was that five-year plan? How did it? Oh, I, because I'd been there so long and I, at that point I was doing all the fundraising, which in the case of the festival was heavy into foundation grants. The only government grant was the National Endowment Grant, but everything else was foundations. And there was like 16 of them on average. Mm -hmm. And they were all big funding sources. 
Which is a lot of work because it's not just the proposal, it's the reporting throughout the proposal period and then the renewal of the grant and the constant relationship with the granting source because that's how you help assure that a grant gets renewed. You keep a relationship with them. You keep the relationship because their policies change. And so you have to be sure that you still fit. It's a lot of work. Did you enjoy that stuff for the, I, most of the 20 I, years you were there? I enjoyed it. The people part of it, the relationship with the people at the foundation, I never felt good at. But because I was a left brain person, a very sharp mind, but not good communicator in person necessarily. Mm. This is where if I needed to be, I could, but it wasn't an easy fit. Right. It wasn't your... Ellen Premack, who uh, at this point was the executive director of the festival, and now I'm the development director. She's really good at that. And so that was how we did it. Ellen, and she knows how good she is at it. And I know how good she is at it. And then vice versa, she knows how good I was at the things that I was good at. So between the two of us, it was a really good... It made things work very efficiently at a very high level. And that was the problem because now I'm leaving and I'm way up the learning curve on my part of it. Right. And so that was the problem. And then the budgets, projects are getting bigger, the budget's getting bigger, the organization is getting into being a major commissioning of orchestral works commissioner, which tens of thousands, 80,000 of it's a prominent conductor, 100,000 of it's the ultimately prominent conductor. It's, composer, rather, composer. It's and like I, the sweet spot in what you want in an organization like that. It was the sweet spot, oh, but yeah. it was accelerating. Yes. And it was the acceleration that I've noticed in me yeah. was hard to feel. I could feel pulling ahead of me. Mm, And I thought, wow, this is like the perfect time to move on and to do the plan, which involved consultants and all that. Did you succeed at the five-year plan? I know you retired, but did the organization, was it left in a good spot? Oh, yeah, definitely. The successor to me didn't work, but that's all right because that led to, well, I don't know if it was all right because I wasn't there, (laughs) but it led to a reorganization of the organization of the staff. And Things, no, things stayed on track and it was like the perfect way to retire really because you put so many decades into something that was really hard, didn't make any sense. No one understood why it worked. It shouldn't work. Won't go into all those things, but just trust me on all that. So it was quite amazing to think that it could just, and it's as strong as ever now. This is like 20... 12 years later, and you, 10 years later. And yeah. you go every year. I go to everything. Yeah. That's yeah. the other thing I get to do. There's daily events because the rehearsals are open and I go to every one of them. I go to them so excited to be there. And of course, I couldn't do any of that when I was working there. You, right. you could peek in on a rehearsal. Right. The rehearsal's open. There's an audience there. And you can say, wow, there's a lot of people here today. Or like, oh, I wish there were more people here today. But, <laughs> but then you'll be gone. You just peek in on it. That's well, what it's like being at a university, working as a staff member at a university. <laughs> all this amazing <laughs> learning and lectures and all this stuff is happening. And you just, you don't, you're not participating in it. You can't. You're busy working. Yes. Yeah. So I, I get to do that now. And so that's another way 
that's like a big high point in my life is those two and a half weeks actually because it per starts year. yeah can you give us a rundown of what the Cabrillo Music Festival is do the pitch oh I don't know if I could do the pitch anymore well it's fairly simple though the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music is an orchestral festival dedicated to performing just the new works of living composers so if the composer's not alive we don't perform it the challenge to this simple formula is that most classical musicians and symphonic orchestras don't like to play new music. Either they don't think it's worth playing or it's too hard because what they play, they've ingrained. They've it's played over, it all their life, yeah. Yeah, as uh, one of your, uh, one of, I forgot, I think it was, oh... Morgan, I think. He went to an open rehearsal once and he really loved it because they are really, especially because he's had music in his life all yeah. growing up. And it's amazing because the orchestra is amazing and the work is unheard of before. And all of a sudden he got it. He said, you know, the, the standard symphonic orchestra is just like a big cover band, isn't it? <laughs> I thought, oh, my God, God. that's true, isn't it? (laughs) Totally. Absolutely. (laughs) It's just a big cover band. (laughs) I thought, whoa. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's one way to understand it. The Caprio Festival of Contemporary Music is not a cover band. It's the opposite. And now that it's so successful, you're actually able to actually have the first performance of a piece ever. Ever. It's always the first performance, but usually it's the only performance, too, which is another whole aspect to it. And why that's important. Also, another thing that the festival is important to is giving a second performance of a work that got premiered somewhere else. The network says, this work really needs to be played again because it's really good. What's the network when you say the network? What do you mean? I don't, it's hard for me to explain that. The symphonic world is small and the network is, there's two components that are essential to that networking. One is the conductors, because the conductors, what the Cabrillo Festival gives conductors its conductor, its artistic director and conductor, and right now it's Michelle Rue Christie, is a blank page. When they go to a standard orchestra, they're usually given programming Directive, map. yeah. Maybe not a directive outright, like a couple of empty slots or something, or a theme. We're going to work in this theme, or it's Beethoven's 150th, whatever. There's all this energy around what the program needs to be. Yeah. So you don't have a lot of flexibility. You have flexibility, but not a lot. And really what you're being asked to do is to give a brilliant performance of it from that orchestra. So in our case, but a conductor whose job it is to do the programming when they're the artistic direction of an orchestra is one of the things they relish right? as an artist. And the festival gives them complete blank page to create on. And that's why Marin Alsop before him and Dennis Davy before Marin and now Christy Machalaru. For them, there's nothing like this in their artistic life. Yeah. Where they go, okay, so now how do you find pieces? That's other conductors who... That's the network, right? The small that's community. The network, but yeah. Really, what I discovered in my own experience was that there's this uh, other aspect to the network, which is music librarians. 
because they usually have at their at whatever orchestra they have a home at there's a music librarian and the music librarians are a network they know what's going on because they're the ones that have to get the parts prepare the parts distribute them to the orchestra send them back to the publishers they're the ones that are in touch with the publishers on a daily basis yeah And, And, and when you're talking about the the pieces in the publishing, what we're talking about, everybody has to have paper printouts of the, each of their pieces. So yeah. everybody has a different sheet almost. Yeah, there's a, every yeah. stand has a single part on it. The conductor has a, the conductor's score is usually huge because it has all the parts on it. So they can understand what's going to be played. Yeah, you yeah. can go down the page and you see all the sections with the parts wow. of that section. It's so funny. Yeah. One sheet of music for one instrument is overwhelming to me. I can't imagine what it's, a conductor can I do. I can show you a score. I have one because we commissioned a piece from Christopher Rouse, who died recently. He's one of the very expensive composers to commission. He's very established and prominent. And Marin and him were very close friends. And there was a lull in his career, and Marin really wanted to commission something. And it was one of the early commissions that we did that was really expensive. Was, I think it was at least $80,000. And because of making it work and finding the money, he was so grateful for the commission that he signed, made sure there was a separate score printed for Ellen and for me each oh, and so signed nice. it in our honor. Yeah. And the score is honors us in the score. Oh, that's wonderful. And the piece has been, it's been recorded. It actually won a, and what is it? Not an Emmy. What is that called? See, I've been long since. You've been out of, the, out of the business, yeah. Yeah, the music award. It won a, for the orchestra that recorded it. What's the piece called? Orchestra Concerto. Christopher Rouse's Orchestra Concerto. One of the things about retirement, though, and getting old. Well, let, me, let me follow up on that. Yeah. It was also a huge compliment to the orchestra because his music is notoriously hard to play. And he did an orchestra concerto, which means somewhere along the line throughout the whole piece, there's going to be a moment, there's going to be a section where one of the sections is basically a soloist, or the principal player is a soloist featuring that section. So there's something really hard that you're going to be asked to perform Mm -hmm. completely exposed in the piece. Yeah. And the roar of the piece, his his piece is roar, roar. But that was a big compliment because his w- music is hard to play anyway. And that's one thing I'm, since before we leave the festival, the other component of it, what makes it work is every player is on their own a new music advocate. Mm-hmm. So when they go away from Santa Cruz and go back to where their home is, they're doing that in their own community. Right. They're usually working in uh, small ensembles, creating little uh, recitals or concerts with you know, doing the work of new music on uh, living composers or commissioning small works from composers in their community. So they're, they're, they're zealots. In their own. So when they come here, this is heaven. It must be they're amazing. They're among a whole orchestra of people that burn with that zeal <laughs> yeah of playing new music yeah yeah and in the early years the festival had no money it was at collapse when ellen and i started in 1990 and the first year was really rough because we didn't know what we were doing i didn't know what i was doing and we 
we created a festival that was way beyond our means. How? How? By spending all the money there was in the bank and now having nothing left over to continue. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Is how. And we had a big debt that we had to pay off, big for the size of the organization. That that must have shaped the organization under you for the next few decades. I'll tell you what happened, because it's really in big moments in my own life of understanding life, is for some reason, Ellen and I wouldn't give up without going into the details I have ways of understanding it, but I, I always think, man, why did we keep coming to work every day? Because <laughs> the orchestra's gone, the festival's over, it's another year before we're back again. And it's just Ellen and us off in a little op- office in Aptos. and Trying to find money. Trying to find money. So, with an audience that was tiny mm. and loved the previous artistic director but that person had left so basically we were down to zero 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 and as far as financially we were actually in a negative number because we had this debt bank debt that had to be paid but we loved the festival and we loved the audience we loved the musicians and i realized what would happen if we didn't we didn't think we could do another festival after 1990. We thought we'd have to suspend it and see mm. if we could regroup, mm. which means you're not going to no. come back. And I thought, well, what would happen if we told the musicians we're not doing it next year? And I thought, what's going to happen is it's going to be about, there's about 70 to 80 musicians every year. There's going to be 40 of them who will come to Santa Cruz anyway. They're going to stay with their hosts because we do host housing at the Gabriel Festival which I thought was a negative, but turned out was wrong because now the hosts know these people, consider them part of their family, and summer would not be the same until the festival came around. Nice. So they would go to their hosts, they would get a venue, like one of the churches, and they would put on a weekend of new music. Right, because that's what they love to do. That's what they can't, you can't stop them from doing that. (laughs) (laughs) So you knew this. I discovered it. In my thinking, and I, and then that led to a realization that was absolutely correct, and took several festivals to be proven to myself, is that because they don't do this for money, um, and money was not our strength at the Cabrillo Festival, they do it because they come together with other musicians who want to do the work. And they get a conductor who wants to do the work. And, and can do the work. And who's really good. <laughs> That's important. Very efficient <laughs> yeah. and good to work with. And, and so I realized, oh, first of all, we have to all do it on the same terms. Everyone who comes to the festival needs to do it on the same terms. Meaning it can't be about money. There has to be something else. There's going to be money there, but it's not going to be what you normally get. You have to have another reason you're doing this. And what I coined then the term was other currency. There has to be another currency. And then I started saying that over and over again. And pretty soon I wouldn't be surprised if Ellen or somebody at the Cabrillo Festival doesn't every now and then say, well, we're, it's really about another currency. And that the currency that the festival has to give is the, the conductor, and the place and the hosts and all, you know, the yeah. audience, all that. 
the management of getting the space. Yeah, to all that stuff, yeah. bring it all. And I used to tell people that if they asked me, what did I do? What I really wanted to say was I make the ground sacred, meaning the civic auditorium. And, and then if I don't think they can handle something like that, then I say I'm a development director or I'm a fundraiser. But that's not really what I think I did. I was really paying attention to all those other currencies. I, I was responsible for you know, large, for, I had a critical set of responsibilities to raise a lot of money. But I never thought of myself raising that money. I wasn't me raising the money. The organization was raising the money. The Carrillo Festival and its uniqueness and its honesty and its pure heart was raising the money. Yeah. And it had this wealth way beyond it is what I discovered. You were flat broke and didn't have it. No. And of course, you need cash for cash needs. Sure. But that's not how you get to the level we got or where it is now, because it's still the same principles. How did you express that you were creating a sacred space for them and make sure that they understood that there wasn't about being taken advantage oh, of? nobody... That was hard in the beginning, because no, no one thought I would last... I was hired as an executive director, and then Ellen and I... Uh, and then hire, Ellen came into the picture, and there was one position open, and I offered it to her, and then we sat together and said, wow, there's just two of us. So we divvied up the responsibilities, <laughs> and and then we were we eventually officially became co-executive directors, right. which nobody liked, but because everybody wants a quote leader, but we had no choice, and there was the truth of it, yeah. and I I like the truth of things to show themselves because it's it's has its own magnetism. Yeah. And you just, because some people say, well, what's the co-director thing about it? And then you get to say what it is. The truth really has a wonderful way of allowing to clean communication, really clear communication. Yeah, and you have to decide. Is If I really wanted a person to understand what I meant by make the ground sacred, then I'm going to say that. Because I have my own reasons why I want them to hear what I mean by that. But if I'm at a party and people say, what do you do? I say, I'm a fundraiser. And right. usually that ends it right there. Yeah. They go, they walk away with hold, <laughs> holding their wallet. Well, they just have no idea what that is. <laughs> I so even... I guess the thing that comes to my mind is that it sounds like in some interpretations of this, you're going to ask people to come and have some faith and not get paid as much. Yeah. How did you make that convince? How did you well, do that? Well, that was the pattern already. The, I remember I did some really, made some really bad decisions early in the first season. Like I, closed open rehearsals. So I thought, why would you open a rehearsal? Then people don't have to pay for a ticket. Man, I got big blowback on that. Literally, people were angry in my face, in my face, spitting in my face through their anger. Yeah. I thought, whoa. And I was already stressed, but to go to, not, to, go to reception and be shouted at in front of everyone, I thought, okay. As days went by, I thought, okay. And then by the second season, I realized that was really... Because by then I started to understand how the wealth of the festivals around things that are not monetized and almost can't, they can't be monetized. The orchestra got a per diem. They're all union members, but their agreement with us is that they were independent contractors at that point and that they would prov- we provide a per diem of X and host housing. And, and so that was 
maybe a third of what they would normally make. So traditionally, a union representative musician would get union hourly yeah, salary. There's a scale. Right. And so every, as an independent contractor, it wasn't like that at there's all. There's no yeah. scale. There's no right. union. You're not working within a union agreement. And I'm resisting getting into details about That's that. That's okay. That's good. But, but, our, but that approach had been used for 17 years before we got there, almost 20 years before we got there. 20 years, I think it was before we Because the truth is, the only way to pay musicians like that is to have tens of thousands of people watching regularly. And yeah. we, Santa yeah. Cruz, we don't have that kind of audience. No, and, and another thing you quickly figure out is the typical symphonic audience has no patience for new music. Uh-huh. They always shrug when they see on a program a new piece. And usually when they program a new piece, they put it at the front. <laughs> So the audience can't Has leave. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't, you can't go to the symphonic audience to look for your audience for a contemporary music festival. So that was a whole other big question: is who are these people? We know they're not necessarily symphony goers. I mean, they might go to the symphony, but they're not hardcore symphony goers. I, I want to start asking you some questions because. As much as this is fascinating, and now really want to participate in yeah. a music festival. Why did you go and get a business degree from Stanford and then go and run a nonprofit organization? There's not any money in that. And, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course, but why dedicate your life to making art succeed? Good. I was, okay, I, when I finished dancing, a very dreamy 10-year career that was totally unexpected, and eternally grateful for as I did it. The challenge is, as a dancer, you have to transition into something, and it's usually teaching, but not everybody's, most people aren't going to do that, so what do you do? So I thought I needed to get into the administrative side, and the reason I knew that is because when I was, the company I worked with, there was three companies, they were all in Switzerland. The one that I started with was the the Ballet du Grand Théâtre, in uh, Geneva and it was a Balanchine company and Balanchine used to come and to our final rehearsals and polish so I got to work with Balanchine and got to know Balanchine and I'm glad you went wow because I wasn't sure anybody remembers who Balanchine was (laughs) well I know nothing about ballet and that's like a name I know so I know Balanchine is it was unbelievable what had happened to me so in Geneva there was also an empresario a Hungarian refugee from civil war i never really got into the details with him about it but he fled hungary in famous conflict in the 50s and married a swiss woman and they had a a, and she was very wealthy her family owned a chain of grocery stores in switzerland and they had a gorgeous house overlooking the lake and and he was he his primary client was elvin ailey dance theater And he booked all of their tours outside the United States. And they toured extensively outside the United States. And he worked out of a briefcase. He'd come to Geneva, and he needed correspondence typed up and follow-up correspondence because this was, you know, like way before. This was telephones only. Yeah. Some teletyping going on, but other than that. And he went to the ballet director and said, "I I need somebody to help me with my letters. Does anybody know how to type? And... I had gone to college, and Patricia Neri was her name. She said, he must know how to type. He went to college. (laughs) And I did. 
So I worked with Paul Zillard and did his correspondence like once a week during lunch. And this is why you were dancing? This was on our break between uh-huh. you have a morning session and afternoon rehearsals or company class and evening performance. But there's always a big break, which is traditional in Europe at that time for everyone. A big lunch break, usually an hour and a half, two hours. So during that time, I go up to Coligny, which was this hillside overlooking Lake Le Mans, um, the lake in Geneva, and look out the window with the doors open if it was breezy day and be typing away. <laughs> and his wife fawned over me and knew I liked pastries, so she'd always go and have a big box. That's like, nice. It was like totally idealistic, unbelievable. Yeah. Anyway. So that, that sucked you into administration. That gave me an insight into the business yeah. of touring and booking because I was doing his contracts and everything, uh, typing them, his letter agreements. So when I stopped dancing, there was a famous ballet general manager in, that I became aware of in New York when I was um, apprenticing in New York at Harkness Ballet. His name was Jean Otteroni. He was Montegasque, meaning grew up in Monte Carlo, and was legendary because he was like the business manager for the Ballet de Cuevas, all these old Russian Diaghilev-era companies that toured the world. He once showed me a list of the 12 places he had not seen in the world yet. Because what happened was, is they hired him in Houston when the Houston Ballet hired Ben Stevenson as their new artistic director. And I worked with Ben Stevenson as a dancer in Geneva. We did his Cinderella, so I knew him. And he actually invited me to join him in a company in London, but that didn't work out. So by this time, I'm not going to dance it anymore, but I wrote a letter to Jano, who'd been their newly made general manager at like age 60-something. They just wanted his clout in the dance world and his charm. He was unbelievably charming. And didn't have a single enemy in the dance world, which wow. was hard to imagine how anybody could manage that. I said, I'd love to come work for you. I want to learn what you do. And he said, please come. And so I get there and he said, oh, he said, I can put you to work, but they won't let me have an assistant because they don't want to make it look like you're next in line. And he said, can you do marketing? And I said, yes, because I'm in <laughs> Houston now. <laughs> I had no idea how to do marketing. But you're there. But I said, yes. <laughs> And and then that led to booking the company. And then I actually booked the company for almost ten, nine years, I think, until it stopped touring when a new hall was built in Houston. So is, I used to book about 10 to 12 weeks of touring a year for Houston Ballet. Is that when you started focusing on Nutcracker? Oh, no. I did that right away because I was marketing. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> oh, this is pretty interesting connection though because I didn't know that much about the Nutcracker because I did not grow up with it but I'm in the ballet world now so I know what it means and New York City Ballet invented the species of the Nutcracker as being a holiday the seasonal show seasonal yeah. show and I get to Houston and my first Nutcracker there I noticed they had well the first thing I did in Houston was they hired me because they needed someone immediately to do to book a Texas tour. And I had stopped dancing. I was living in Beaumont, Texas. I won't say why it's too complicated, which is 90 miles from Houston. Yeah. I saw the job listing. I applied. 
um, they preferred someone from San Francisco, Cisco. They liked me. No one's going to move from San Francisco to Houston. And sure enough, they didn't. <laughs> and they called me in a panic saying, can you do it and can you start right away? So the first year at Houston Ballet, I was driving back and forth. Well, that's a lot of driving. And I did a Texas tour and other things. And then I got a call from Zurich because Pat Neary wanted me to come and be her administrative assistant in Zurich, which I wanted to be Swiss. I love Switzerland. So I said, oh, I'm going to go. I was there a year in the opera house, and I realized, man, I'm too young for the opera house. Not as a dancer, but as a, can't be too young as a dancer, but as a young start out in, in the administration, it was too... Um, too uh, bureaucratic because uh-huh. you're actually an agency within the government of the country. You're getting paid just like a policeman, which is good. It's like they fund <laughs> the arts correctly. Oh, it's total. <laughs> That's the other thing about it. I was not a starving dancer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my, no. It was a good wage, beautiful facilities. They buy your shoes, all, the, all your equipment for you, etc. It was fantastic. Uh, you're in an opera house. When it's time to put on like quick changes, there's dressers in the wings who are there to get you through the. Tr- it's fun. It's fantastic. Yeah. And so, Tom, you went through two. You've gone through two retirements because retiring as a dancer is a total stop of a career. Uh, yeah. Well, for me, it was. And I, it sounded like you loved it. I did. I totally loved it, and I loved the person I was in it. And there's a lot of times when I needed to be a person, when I had to be, I was. But there's so many times when I was just the person I was. And a young person, so it's, you don't even know who you are then. And yeah. I used to not say no to anything. And it was fantastic. And when I stopped dancing, when I decided, when I looked around, and I was now in my 30, early 30s, I looked at dancers who went on into their 30s and even 40s. I thought, I don't want to be that person. So I thought, I better just quit while I'm ahead. And I really cold, stopped cold. Wow. Were people, were people surprised you did that? No, because that's either one or the other. Some people do and some people don't. If you keep going, what happens? You, you just get to the point where you too many injuries or you can't do it anymore. Yeah. Or they simply say you can't do it anymore. Right. They tell you that. So, so you weren't told that. You stopped before oh, no, you were told no, that. I, yeah, you know, no, not at all. And in fact, I got called back for one tour of Spain after I stopped. Because they needed you? I knew the repertory, and I was just a backup in case. And in Spain, you do get sick because <laughs> of the, <laughs> your body is not used to the heat. Um, not the heat. Well, that too could be, but no, it's the fresh vegetables because of the soils, the, what's in the soils. So you, you got sick. You have to be really careful. Yeah. I did get sick. In fact, the one I only went on stage one night, and the person I was replacing was really sick. And that afternoon, I was getting sick. <laughs> so, I, so your last performance, I, basically I, as a professional ballet, was a sick person. Oh yeah. Oh, that's interesting. But what's no another thing you learn? I learned is that you rarely get to dance when you're totally fit to dance. And just think about it, because the. Performances are scheduled. <laughs> They're at that night at that time on that day. And lots of people are going to be there. And, and everybody needs you. You are not going to be there. Your body just isn't the same body every day Yeah, for whatever reason. So even if your body is all working right, you're just not, 
you might have to psych yourself to get you into the performance. It's just, it's rare where you're, everything's in alignment and you're ready to go. It does happen. And it's ethereal when it happens. I, I had an out-of-body experience at least once and maybe twice where I could see myself dancing in real time. It's that euphoric when that happens, but that's rare. And so I didn't actually think of that, that, oh, what a shame my last performance was. I was under the weather. <laughs> it's just representational of what it is. It, yeah. it is. Yeah. It's just how it is. It's a physical thing, and your body is just not the same body every day, every minute. So then I, when Houston ran its course, and I kind of cracked the code on... The Nutcracker was, just to quickly go back to that for a second, yeah. at the time, there Houston was the fourth largest city in the world, in, this, in the country. There was a population boom at the time, and it was edging out for third place, in and out. And they had a nutcracker that performed like at a, the audience size was like good for decently filling the house for maybe eight or nine performances. And that didn't make any sense to me. I forgot how many people that was. The theater held almost 3000. It was huge. And so the audience just seemed small for a city that big and um, beautiful hall. All the ingredients are there, but just the audience wasn't there. I thought, this doesn't make any sense. And so then I really knuckled down and tried to think, what is it about the Nutcracker? Why do people, what is it? So many people go to it, they're not interested in ballet. They're not ballet domains. It's the only thing they see that year of ballet. Yeah, literally. So I, I thought, I puzzled with the idea, well, do they even know they're going to a ballet? And then I realized, no, they don't. They're going to the Nutcracker. And I said, well, what's going on? It's all in my own head. And I thought, well, because I used to, the first year when I just had the experience of it, I didn't really have a chance to work on it. I'd be in every performance. I'd see the people and I think, these people aren't our people. And as kids and usually with grandma, not mom and dad a lot, but often with grandma and all dressed up. You know, this Houston, it's a show. It's a thing. It's all dressed up. You're at Jones Hall, the big hall. And I thought, oh, I started to get it, is that this is one of the things you do to make Christmas happen. And I had a personal experience when I, one of my last companies I worked with as a dancer was in, in Basel, Switzerland. And I was living alone and we had a Christmas Eve performance. I can't remember if it was actually Christmas Eve or maybe the eve before Christmas Eve, but it was right on Christmas and the city had pretty much shut down. It left the theater. It was dark. It was not an evening performance. It was a late afternoon performance. And I took the tram as far as I wanted to go and I thought, I'm just going to walk the rest of the way home. And it was snow flurries, dark gray, night had fallen, windows are lit up, it's Christmas. And I walked by this Dickens Christmas window, the, the, leaded, the leaded triangular windows yes. in a bay. Yes, yes, yeah, great. And the room was lit with everyone dressed and Christmas tree and I, a lonely person, walking by it to my dark, lonely apartment. Right. And I really got that if you don't do things to make Christmas happen, 
you're left outside like I was, going home to nothing, not even a Christmas tree, because I didn't even think of it. I was by myself. And and that's, when I got to Houston, I thought, oh, you... Christmas happens because all these people do things for each other to make it happen. And the Nutcracker is one of them. Now I had what I needed. (laughs) And I got so much, so many kudos for that first season of the, you know, this time, there was an era when everything was print, radio, and television, and there was taglines. And the tagline of the, of our promotion of our advertising because i could afford paid advertising in houston ballet because it's a big budget company was your favorite christmas tradition (laughs) now that sounds simple doesn't it you'd be surprised how hard that was within the organization no mention of ballet christmas what about Jewish traditions. Fortunately, the marketing committee that I reported to had on it Myrna Phillips, who was the marketing director of the largest department stores in the Southwest. They were based in Houston. And I, I said to her, Sydney, they're afraid that if we say Christmas tradition, that will offend Jews. She said, Tom, let me talk to them. <laughs> she's from New York. <laughs> right. I can't and, do her accent. And but of she's, course, she's at a department store, so she knows what Christmas is for a department at store. the apartment store. Foley's was one of these department stores that still had Christmas windows that people would go by. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually she themed the whole store on the Nutcracker. And oh, they nice. did a parade. with. They were trying to rival Macy's. Right. They never got picked up, but they always had this big parade, lots of floats, and the ending float was Santa Claus with the Nutcracker, <laughs> with all the Nutcracker characters around him. It was a major success for your career, It right? was huge. And intellectually for me, it was huge because it set me free. How so? There was all this pressure to do what everybody else does. Hmm. Yeah, I, every now and then I'll check in Houston when it's around the Nutcracker and see what they're saying. And man, it's disappointing because they'll either be talking about how it's a great ballet and how it gives dancers, every dancer's chances to do solo roles and solo dancers to do principal, blah, 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 blah. They're All internal outreach. stuff. <laughs> yeah. And telling it to the public. It's, uh, who cares? Uh, if you stayed with the conversation, it means you loved it already. So what's the advertising <laughs> yeah. for? But anyway, by that time, the... What I was able to make happen by being there long enough is to establish it as a Christmas tradition. Right. You don't have to say it anymore. You don't right. say no, then it's New York set up, set up Ballet is, Nutcracker is your favorite. No, everybody no. knows it is. <laughs> as long as you have a 10 years of people doing it regularly, yeah, they'll do it the rest of their lives. Yeah. Stick with it yeah. and establish it. And then it, then people say it with. Without you, you don't need to say it anymore. Tom, I asked you earlier why nonprofits, why art well, I was support. Kidding. That's the next step. Okay, good. So Houston ran its course again. I'm amazed at how lucky I've been to a lot of good guessing and finding out it works, mm-hmm. both in touring and in marketing the traditional performances and in marketing the Nutcracker. But by that time, I could see a big change coming because there were. The season after I left was the opening of the new Wortham Theater, which was just for the opera and the ballet, and was a much smaller capacity, which mm. means you could take the same audience and guarantee more weeks of performances in Houston. 
the reason we were touring so much when I was there is because we guaranteed the whole, almost a whole year contract with the dancers, mm. meaning that's rare. And so you can keep dancers that way. You have to move to the audience. You have to find an audience when you don't have enough for at home. And right. so that's what touring was about. When the new theater came online, that same audience, which now had grown, could be moved over to the other theater, be even more spectacular setting for them, meaning guaranteeing their loyalty and, and fun, and fill the whole contract. Of course, the downside is it's really boring for the dancers, but I was gone. And I and there was a board member who said, Tom, you got to get out of here. And he said, and I want to help you. And I said, well, and I was ready. And he gave me three options. And one of them was to apply to the two top business schools. And he said, if you can get into one of them, you should probably do it because you're really smart. But he said, don't go to business school, just go to business school. If you can get into Harvard or Stanford, then go then you might want to go. He didn't say go. And then there was two other options. One was to be a partner in a touring of a touring agency, an agency that booked tour, tours in Austin, which is a thing I almost did, and then start a magazine because I was way up the learning curve on psychographics, which was a key re- survey tool that shapes a living, living style. Uh, I forgot what they used to call it, styles of living, can be very focused if you use psychographic tools at the time. And I did it at the ballet, and he said, you could start your own magazine. And he said, I'll put you in touch with somebody who starts magazines. So, so I did a all, lot of choices. I'd had real choices. And I almost did the Austin thing when I got an acceptance letter from Stanford. I said, oh. And so you, I went to sit in on a day there, Oh, to see if you want to be there. To see if I wanted to do it. And man, I walked on the campus and went, I was, I thought, man, I've never felt anything like this. This is nothing. This is, I need, I needed, I just knew I needed to do it. Just the experience of it. I said, I have no idea what's going on here, but it's nothing I've seen before. <laughs> it's not any other campus I've been on. And I remember I, I paid for it myself. And, but I, in Houston, I started learning about investments, blah, blah, blah. And, and so I had a good nest egg and I thought, I can afford this. I'll do it. The market crashed in 1987 as soon as I got there. Just so that doesn't sound so rosy. No. So it put me in a tight position, but I was okay. But yeah, I, that's when I realized maybe I don't want to be in the nonprofit sector because yeah. now I'm I have a real chance to do anything I want in the business world get a foothold somewhere and and there was a big market crash so people weren't you know normally you would you get recruited when you're in programs like this there's sure. recruiters there every week and you can sign up for any of them and I thought I got into investing maybe I want to work at one of the big banks like Goldman Sachs and I you get wined and dined it's embarrassing you know, stretch limos and everything. It's really, that that made me very uncomfortable. And I remember sitting in on a new recruit meeting to see whether in San Francisco office. And they clearly favored the Stanford students. There was other people around the table, but they kept looking at us. What are you thinking? And I thought, oh, this is kind of 
nice. <laughs> and and finish the day, go to the elevator, and there's this guy who gets in with me, and he's singing in the elevator, bass, baritone, or bass maybe, deep voice, but real voice, cultivated. I said, wow. So that's, you're really good. He said, oh, yeah. He says, it's beats sloshing bombs around all day. And that's when I decided I can't do that. This band with this beautiful voice is stuck in a bank. Yeah. Yeah. And he knows it and he says, I just, all I could say going down is just another day sloshing bombs around. Yeah. And I thought, oh, okay. So that kind of turned, I stopped, I kept trying to get, but I, I tried to get big jobs in the arts. Like I tried to get in San Francisco Ballet. They wouldn't even give me an interview. Really? Yeah, really. And I thought, wow. Anyway, but my head had been turned. I realized, I don't know what I'm doing now. I'm just enjoying these two years I'm here, which I really did. It was a real experience by itself. Yeah. And so what happened was, is I didn't have any job when I graduated. It took me almost nine months to get a job. It was through the ballet network that I knew from touring. Sure. I had I was very well known within those touring networks, and there was I think it was Pacific Northwest Ballet said you told call me I'm said Tom I, I recommended you for a consultant looking for somebody in Louisville Ballet said so she said are you, are you interested in something like that I said sure I am, so I went to Louisville for a year but they didn't work as executive director because I realized and then I also realized I wanted to live in California, so I came back to California again with no job, but I had a partner at that time and she stayed in. She was working at Stanford while I was a student. She came with me from Houston, and she worked at the Lively Arts as their development director at the time, which was a presenting arm of the university. And so she had a job, and I, someone, oh, Lively Arts director said, Tom, there's this music organization in Santa Cruz that's looking for an ED. Do you want to, you should check it out. So I did. They invited me for an interview. There was nothing there. There was just no money. They're trying to find a new music director. The beloved one had left. Yeah. But put their foot down and said, "No, I'm leaving now. You need to find someone else." Dennis Davies. And um, I thought, well, I'm just going to talk. What I got to lose? I met with twelve people and spent the day. Spent um, in a very small room. Was interviewed by twelve people. I'm all suited up and we're in Santa Cruz. No one else is. And that finished up. And then Manny Santana, who, I don't know if you remember who Manny Santana was. Well, Manuel's restaurant. Oh, sure. And he his real life was as an artist, painter, sculptor. And just when I arrived in Santa Cruz is when he was leaving the running of the restaurants to his family and working in his studio every day. And that's the part of his life I knew, him as an artist. And so here he is in this room, and he says, okay, he said, why don't you join us for lunch over at the Deer Park Inn, which is not that anymore. It's forgot the name of it now. And over a bottle or two of wine, there was a smaller group of us that spent a couple hours over at the Deer Park Inn in the afternoon. And I came home and I called up the person who was my contact and I said, no, 
because, you know, I saw the financials, I knew the story now. I thought there's no way. The board had divided. The board people I was sitting with were half the faction that right, got right. their way. That means you'll be in the middle of that. Yeah. And so I thought, no, I don't want to be a martyr again. And I did that in Houston. And, and I couldn't sleep that night. And so I called Mar- Marion, not Marion, Rosemary Purser. And I said, can I change my mind? And she said, yes. And because I thought, I don't care. I don't need to prove anything anymore. I have an MBA from Stanford. <laughs> I like those people. You enjoyed your time with them I drinking wine. I like them. Yeah. All of them. And I wanted to be among them. And if nothing else, I'll learn about new music. I know nothing about new music. And they want to hire me who knows nothing about new music. So I thought, well, I'm going to learn about new music. and I'm assuming that was a good decision? Yeah, because now I'm, well, when I retired, I was considered, Ellen and I are like experts, neither of us. And my, Ellen's deep into the networks now. She's highly respected in the country and the world because she's been there for 30 years mm-hmm. doing this. And so that's how I, and what I would say about, well, no one's ever asked me this, but I imagine it's in their mind, even if they don't. Isn't that kind of a waste of an MBA from Stanford? Actually, someone has asked me that. And I could quickly say no. Most graduates of that program don't get to use all the tools that they learned. I got to use every one of the tools I learned on a daily basis. Right, because most ha- of them learn all these tools, then go do one small job. and do one function within a large organization and I needed all of them all the time and that's how that works and then I went on to actually develop a whole set of theories about organizational funding and organization that were completely my own because I had the confidence to do that because of the Stanford degree? yeah the guy in Houston his name was Manny Sanchez he, he said, Tom, you don't need to go to business school. He says, but I'll tell you the reason I want, I hope you go. He never said I want. I hope you go to business school. He said, first of all, you will get a toolkit. And but he said, most importantly, you'll get confidence. Mm. And that's exactly true. Yeah. You do need the toolkit because I, I can read financial statements. It was important. It was easy for me to say no because I could read, read those financial statements. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were... <laughs> bad. Bad. <laughs> and the accountant gave me 10 years of data. It was consistently bad. The thing about nonprofits, especially funded that's mostly by grants, is it's completely different than most business school concept of how businesses run. Normally, you think about revenue, and that's by selling your product. But in the nonprofit space, when it's all grant-based, it's not how it works at all. So, yeah, I, I I hear that. I started thinking before you finished, so that's unfair. But but only because I've thought about that also. And get in the chair with me. I guess that would be okay. She thinks you're Clarissa or something. <laughs> <laughs> hi, Sabak. Do you want to say hi to everybody? You can tell her to get down. Just tell her to lay down. Okay, lay down. Go go lay down. You might have to give her a push. <laughs> Maybe she wants to lay down right here. That's fine with me. 
She does, yeah. She wants to be with you. Yeah. Except enough room. Is that right? I think so, yeah. You can take that cushion out behind her if you can pull it out. Yeah. Yeah, I often, the Caprio Festival, by all standards, is a small business. It's under a million dollar operating budget. And it has a lot of employees, quote unquote, because of the size of the orchestra. It's big productions, so there's stage crews. So seasonally, there's hundreds of people involved during the season. And and there's a lot of behind the scenes. You're working with composers and commissioning multiple commissions at one time. There's a small clusters of people around each of those people that have to be managed. It's a very complicated small business. It's a very complicated. It's not a simple small and business. It's totally year round. It's not. It's multi years in advance. You're planning for things that aren't going to happen for a year or two. Yeah. Maybe three sometimes, and all simultaneous. So it's complicated, and but basically what it gets down to is just like any small business. Another. Um, thing I tell myself is you just have to put the balloons out every day. And I don't know if you ever, when you think about Donnelly's Chocolate on Mission Avenue. Sure, I know that place. He puts fresh balloons out every day on his little sidewalk sign. Yeah. And I asked him about that one day and he said, got to put those balloons out there. <laughs> I said, where do you get them? He stopped at, I stop at Safeway on my way to the shop. <laughs> And I loved hearing that because that's the life of a small business owner. They have to put the balloons out. Every little thing has to be done. Every day. Yeah. And that's what Cabrillo Festival of Temporary Music is just like that. Every day we do all those little things that we need to do every day without fail. And some of them sound like not important. So all of these reasons, it's interesting, it's hard, it's all these challenges and all that stuff, which is partly engaging your mind and also letting you know when maybe your mind's not there for it anymore. Yeah. But what I'm not hearing is that it's important for people or you're glad to wake up because you're helping bring music to people or Mm-mm. any of that stuff. Mm-mm. Why not? No. No, you have to live into the experience. It's the experience that's important. And the experience is shared. And my job is to wake up and live into it every day. What do you mean? Well, I had the privilege of uh, defining it. So for me, putting words on it, defining it meaning not... not Describing it. Meaning putting words on it, putting words on what is the wealth of this organization? What are people, what's really important to people? Why are other people getting up every day? If you're a musician and you get, they perform 12 to 14 works each season. That's a lot of study. <laughs> they have to learn 12 to 14 new parts. Wow. And they don't know what it sounds like. All they have is their part. So they don't know what the piece sounds like. They just have to get that part in their fingers or in their mouth or whatever their instrument is in their hands because they won't know that until they get to Santa Cruz. When everybody's there. But they have to know their part so well that when they sit down, they can play it. Okay, that's kind of magical. That's magical. The first rehearsal is the magical rehearsal. Well, the rehearsals are, you never know what's going to happen. But what was reliable was that first rehearsal when they would sit down and usually the Marin or, or Christy will, you know, just recognize and we're sitting here together the first time in a year. Let's just play this through best we can. And they do. And you think, whoa, 
unbelievable. This, this piece of music has only ever existed in one person's mind, the composer's mind. That's yeah. it doesn't exist until no, it's played in that it does moment. Not exist. And everyone and, had and to learn. And the composer's it. there. We okay. always, the composer's always there. It's very rare that we don't have the composer in the room for the rehearsals and everything. Sure. And they wouldn't think of it any other. They want to be there. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So there's all these reasons why other people get up around it every morning, and I want to put words on that. That's what I do when I get up every morning as I keep that understanding and build on it, keep building on it. Because the more I would think about it and find that things do stick, when I think of like other currencies idea, that gets really powerful. The organization looks extremely wealthy then. Mm. Yeah, like the open rehearsals things... One of the big compliments from the orchestra, from the players, is how great it is to have an audience in rehearsal. Really? They like it? Yeah. It's feedback, direct feedback. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. And because it's new music, no one's heard it yet. I personally want to go to the rehearsals so I can really hear it in the performance. Right. I want to really hear it in a deeper, because if you hear it just once, these pieces are symphonic, they're complex. It's unreasonable to think you're going to get it in one hearing. All you're going to get is the excitement of the experience of it, and you're going to get something out of it. Absolutely, it's a performance, it's live. If you go to the rehearsals as much as you can, you'll really get into it deeper, and you'll did, fall in love with pieces that way. Did you feel that way five years into helping run the organization, or did it grow over time? It grew over time. I, the, the beginning of it was when I got, was that what I said before, when I realized that if we shut the festival down for a season, there'd still be like 40 musicians that would come in. Now there's conductors among them. There's composers among them. And they will do a weekend. With, they'll stay with their hosts, rent a hall, rent a church for nothing. I love that idea that they'll do it anyway. It's anyway. Well, they're going to do it anyway. We might as well make it as, be- as good as possible for yeah, them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That was the beginning of a very simple, maybe unproven yet idea. And then as time went on, it became very clear that was exactly right. And, that in, and then you, I asked myself, well, what's the reasons for that? Why? What's in it for them? There's no mm-hmm. money in it. And then as soon as you ask those questions, you start to see what's, what the other currencies are. It's studying a piece of music you've never heard, no one's ever played. You only get your part, and then you go to a room with all these people. And you want to do and that. And it emerges. Yeah. You know why? Because it stokes your own creative juices. Sure. It keeps you alive as an artist. And you'll hear, I've heard musicians talk, many musicians in many forums talk about this at the festival and it's always that same kind of theme being among like minds I live all year long for this two weeks when I go back from these two weeks my my chops are so strong I sit down and when we go back to my orchestra and I just breeze through stuff it's that's where the currency it's like a is. summer program for that's these people that's the currency is. Yeah, yeah see that's a currency that has true value paper currency only has true value as a symbol of something. Yeah. Just like the Cabrillo Festival opportunity to play in that orchestra is a symbol for something of real value to some people, yeah. some artists. And then you have a whole room of people like that. 
Yeah. Now, it took a while to distill this. You said the first five years because it was a transition. So no one thought Ellen and I would stay for more than a year. <laughs> and they were just waiting for us to be gone. And then the default modes come back. And it was not a festival dedicated to just new music when we started. That was something Marin Alsop changed. And that was critical. Once we got into that groove where we were pure-hearted, now, and then this idea of currencies and a pure heart, you see how powerful that can yeah, be. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the message. That's the business school message. That's the business school message? Yes. You're trying to figure out what your core strengths are, what your competitive advantages are. Right. What, who your market is. You're the market for the new music zealot in symphonic orchestras across the world, period right. of the world. We have musicians that come from all over the world. Spain, Australia, principal players, all over the world, because they want to be in this band, as they say. Is it so? Is the, that's not really normally you think of the market as the people that come and pay the money down, but you're saying in your situation the market is actually musicians, yeah, 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 because you want the most you want the wealthiest orchestra you can because the currency is that desire to play, yeah. and that be so there. you want people with the strongest desires because those are those the strongest need because we're going to give you what you need which is a great audience who can't wait to hear you both in rehearsal and at performances, who will cheer at you like you're in a stadium. Yeah. There's no polite applause. at the <laughs> <laughs> There's whooping and hollering and whistling yeah. who will lean forward in their chair when the composer is asked to speak, is required to speak, actually. We don't let them say no. And expect the conductor to speak to us, tell us a little bit about the piece if they want to we want we want to all be in the same room there's no proscenium yeah. there's no fourth wall or whatever you call it we're all in the same room the ground is sacred we started our conversation by talking about your health and in, we led into you talking about retirement has been nice you like it and there's a sadness about retirement because you're not at the festival making it happen, you're enjoying the festival. You're more watching than doing. And your body is less than it once was. Okay, let me take them one by one. By getting to go to everything at the festival, I am not watching, because that's not how the festival works. I can go to any composer, and I do, and everyone does at open rehearsals, because we get familiar. They see we're, in the re we're coming to open rehearsals. And, and composers expect to be approached by anybody in the audience to ask them something about their piece or to say, oh, I loved how you explained that to the orchestra or to go to the trombone player at the break and say, man, you were on fire in that section. And, and they say, oh, well, it's really hard to play. I was a little bit lucky, you know, that kind of stuff. There's that going on everywhere during the break. There's, You're participating. You are there. Yeah, You okay. are truly there. And that's what I missed as being on staff, is I could hardly ever truly be there. Now, in retirement, I know the value of what we built, and I get to be there. You get to enjoy the value get of what you built. Yeah, in what we built. Yeah. 
And I often, I look at Ellen and I look at Jessica and I look at Leslie, Lindsay and Tamara. And I think, man, I know that they're not really here. I know that they're doing. <laughs> they're all adrenalized and they're really can be very happy from a, whoa, this is working happy. Like you, you can see from their vantage point when things are working and when, but you have to be ready for when things aren't because someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and pull you away. Yeah. And I don't have any of that. I get to be really there. Well, that is a good win. I totally get, I like that. Yeah. And this just goes on and on in retirement if you let it. Like what else is in retirement just bringing you well, complete joy? One of the key things I've been doing lately is I'm getting better and better at spotting old patterns that I don't want to define how I behave anymore. Like when you called or when word got to me that you wanted to interview me, I told you already that my first thought was no. And then my second thought was you need to ask your mother first because we're both the same age if it's about aging. And that's old pattern stuff. I don't know how deep you want to go, but you don't see that pattern in me that I... Try to make a plan for other people? No, I just say no without... You say no first. They say no first, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. And um, especially if it's in the evening. This is a good reason why people around you make plans for you, or you wouldn't do anything. Well, <laughs> I'm pretty stubborn about it, and so they don't push. But sometimes Clarissa and Virginia would push over the years. But they respect that I say no as it means no. So um, you try to <clears throat> push the boundary of that, decided not to say no. No, change the pattern. See the pattern. See, again, it's about seeing the pattern. Right. And I saw the pattern. Didn't change my mind, but I saw the pattern. And it was at night. So I know in the morning I need to revisit. Because uh-huh. at night I'm not going to change. So that's another I know. And I don't have much control over that one because yeah. it's just about how my, what's that thing about circadian things? That's uh, how my sleep patterns and stuff, how right? my Your body works. cycle of life sure. works every day. So that's a lot to change. Do you, do you have a, an inner voice that's judging you? I have resentments. I don't have an inner voice judging me. I've, all my life I've been free of that. I know, I know I see it in other people. I hear other people talk about it. The resentments. Virginia then. mentioned that book, that The Artist's Way, which is sitting right over there. I started reading it. The very first pages of that talk about the inner critic. I have a, I'm quick to criticism all through my life, and my new thing around that is to spot that and prefer curiosity to it. I'm pretty good at stopping that right away. Are you mostly critical of other things or of yourself? Everything. Everything. Not everything. Just not usually myself. Not, I don't have a strong negative voice. No. Okay. What, so, did, what did you call that voice? I don't know. Inner, inner voice or... Inner uh, voice that criticizes. Yeah. No. Yeah. Mind talk is also used. My inner voice is revelatory voice. Oh, It nice. shows me things that are true, that I need to rely on as true. I've always had a strong, intuitive inner voice that if I could find it, I know I've found what I need to know and then just be confident about it. Like, the, like realizing in the snow in, in Geneva that... Oh, it's about Christmas yeah. is about making it yeah. happen. It was that kind of thing. Me. My that was your inner, inner voice. voice. Nice. Said that. Said, look at that. Or currency, uh, other, or currencies. other currencies. Yeah, yeah. something will click and it'll tell me. I, when I used to run every morning, that's usually when that voice would show up. And mm-hmm. Other people who run I'd do good or do exercise and stuff. Yeah, that yeah. 
their mind settles down and all of a sudden there's this voice that speaks clearly. So it's just a clear voice that breaks through the clutter. So what, what's the critical part of you? The, the, the critical, the critical of other part things? is just a reactive thing. And I've been curious about it for a couple of years now, a year and a half or so. And what I realized is that it's usually coming from a resentment. And resentment, in my mind, is like an unresolved, simmering anger that's easily triggered. It doesn't make you shouting angry. It makes you just angry. Mm -hmm. And it comes out as, it expresses itself as a criticism of a person, of a situation, of a whatever. And uh, something you did, but not self-criticism. Where do these resentments come from? Well, I've been resisting giving you an example, but I, I'll launch into it now since you told me. You can me use it. me as an example if you want. Yeah, I will. Okay, when you called, I have an ongoing resentment around you that is not so much you, but it's in the family dynamic of the Troxels. And I, I figured it out. You recognized it, noticed it. That's true. Yeah, yeah I, for a, a long time now, though. and And I thought, and so I just name it. I think, oh, okay. And then it all dissolves. It came up when you asked me to do this because it's, you know, my understanding. I haven't listened to any of these record, any of these interviews, but Virginia has told me about some of them. And I thought, oh, this is the Troxels doing the Troxel thing. And which is what the resentment is. I'm, I'm not in that world. That's the resentment. And I thought, well, why is there resentment around that? And then I thought, I'll take it a couple of steps further because you. I think you're inviting me to. Absolutely. Yes, please. It involves your father. You're still inviting me? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I met Peter as peer in the arts community. Executive directors of arts in Santa Cruz, yeah. And I was part, I liked him from the first time I met him, which he was chairing a meeting of the Council Associates, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. And they met like once a month or every every other month. And we were at the, the theater space on the Art League theater space which was freezing cold and dark. They had the door open to let some light in. And we were freezing in there. And I had just come, my last experience of a group of artistic administrators of any kind was in Houston. Where there was were money. Cutthroat. Oh. You're at I each see. other's throats, highly competitive. Everybody's looking for the grant. I know. Uh. Everybody's looking for everything resources, whatever, theater space, theater time, whatever. So you assume that's what this was going to be? I assume that's how life is in the arts world. And I walk in, and we're all sitting in this little theater, and we're sitting comfortably with each other talking about things together. I thought, wow, this is what I hoped California would be. <laughs> <laughs> My memory of that, maybe it was a, din- a lunch that he did, but he well, liked no, to get a culture. Uh-huh. Into a, there was a associates' meetings, and those went on, too, even during the lunch. Um, period, and then we a smaller group would meet of executive directors would meet as um, lunch, and maybe that did eventually take over the other meeting. I can't remember that anymore. But I knew him as a peer; we were equals. And then I meet Virginia, and we fall in love, and I become part of her family, which is your family. And go to um, the our big, family, but yeah, go come on. back to the big events or that are your the Troxels are the biggest part of the family events when they're all together. They're the most people in the room, and and there's a lot of big egos in the room, 
and Peter's is the biggest and the most admired, and all of a sudden I'm totally unequal to Peter. And that's the, and I think that's the core of my resentment in the family. Yeah, is that outside the family, Peter and I were like long he's running ever. QSP. You're running yeah, the career music and festival and, and Quomba and on right, Candy Beal. We're equals, and never thought of it otherwise. And all of a sudden, I'm in an environment where Peter's held up higher than I am, yeah. all the time. And I thought, I think that's the. The, at the heart of it. So that's where I am with it now. Interesting. So now when I'm at your house and they're all like when Alejandro was here, yeah. that was a painful experience for me. Why was that? Well, I was okay. But I know that something of what I'm feeling is shared about the rest of us on the perimeter of the family who are on the perimeter of the room. Because mm. this is the other thing I'm good at. I'm good at reading groups. And I think, wow, look at Sean's over there, over there. Alejandro is in the kitchen at the sink with his back to all of us. Your sister is yelling at him. What's the next dish? Oh, this dish. She's like narrating the event. And he's and I thought, doing wow, all the work. Yeah, we're doing a lot of work. Not only doing all the work, but he's a man of color. We need to point out also at this stage. And a sweetheart. And he certainly knows how to take care of himself. But nonetheless, I do have my own heart around that. Yeah. And that's what I was watching through my heart. And that's why that's hard. Not to say there's anything wrong. Right. I'm just telling you what I see in that dynamic, group dynamic. See, it's another thing I learned in business school about group dynamics. It's not a, it might be hard to hear. It's not a judgment. It's just my way of understanding why I feel that resentment. It's funny. None of this is hard to hear at all. I'm very like, oh, that's interesting. Well, but that's my curiosity radio voice going on too. My experiences in those d- group dynamics is that there's all this pressure and there's this desire for everybody to be happy. And there's this ex- exhaustion that kicks in where I'm resentful the entire time I'm even hosting well, the you're thing. You're the host. Yeah. Oh, it's just like, why yeah. am I doing this? It's so hard. All those things. Yeah. I think it's, I I learned for myself, if you asked me two years ago, do you have a lot of resentments or are you resentful? I'd say no. I don't have any resentments. I can't think of any. Well, that's because resentments are really sneaky. (laughs) They're like my, they're like my um, shingles. It's the virus is living there day after day. It's just very quietly remaining dormant. Yeah. And something triggers it and there it is, giving me two weeks of pain. (laughs) That's what resentments are. They lie there dormant, and then something triggers them over and over again. Mm-hmm. So anytime, not not anymore because I've grown. You've opened your heart to me, and I've opened my heart to you, and we've grown. I've grown to love you. So if I feel a resentment, it's just a, it's just a virus that got triggered, mm. and so I look at it and I think, oh man, there it is. That resentment. Okay. It doesn't have to own you, though. It doesn't have to drive you. No, it doesn't. That's the trick about it I learned for myself is that you can let, if you don't tend to it, that resentment can run you or ruin your evening. Mm. You're just smoldering there. I was not smoldering at that. I was loving that party, especially I couldn't wait for the... Well, all those courses were pretty amazing. Well, (laughs) I got all the ingredients, so I knew, I couldn't imagine what he was going to do with any of it. 
because they're all so, a lot of very exotic ingredients yeah. that I don't know how to use. So for me, it was heaven, actually. It was, it was a heaven. It but, was also a hard night, too. But I can't be somewhere without... Okay, the other thing I've learned in my as I age, and I, I can be the person I like versus the person I need to be, is especially after my brother's crisis around addiction, he and I, he, his recovery, because he was working a program that invites family members to have their own weekly sessions, was the start of my own recovery and period of self, self, where you look at yourself, self-examination, and in, in the weekly meetings that facilitated so you get tools you learn tools various tools on various issues like communication or dealing with anxiety or dealing with the emotions that get in your way you get learn about them and learn some practices that you can try to internalize so you can grow there's potential for self-growth if you stick with it so that's what I've been doing for two years now. And so I have a lot of things I think about all the time that go deeper into understanding exactly what it is about that person that I like. That was there when I was a kid, because mm. I liked myself when I was a kid. I, I don't know if most kids do, but I did. I love my life, mostly. And, uh, and then adolescence happens and adulthood happens, and you, that becomes when you were a kid. And now I, I I felt that again, like that peace and and security and confidence about who I was when starting to show itself again. I still had things in my way. Like I have a, a lot of trouble all through my adult life of hanging out with men. And so easy to hang out with women, but not men. And uh, unless they were in the arts, unless we shared the arts, but... I wished I could just hang out with a neighbor. And I thought, what's that about? And, and then I'm not going to go into all the answers there, but I made, some, I made real progress. And the other day, I was out on the street. Our neighbor, next-door neighbor moved. The new neighbor was there. It's a single guy, paid contract, painting contractor. And he was hanging out there with the guys. And I came over with our dog and said hi. And I already met him. And so I introduced him to two neighbors who just walked up with their dogs. And and they're just talking easily and you know, like filling them in about what's the situation here about floods and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and and then what a great neighborhood it is and how wonderful the neighbors are. And Nick, this guy down the street who I've known all the time he's lived here, and he said, oh, and Tom is the best. He's the best guy on the block. And I thought, whoa. I had no idea I would get someone who I admire as just a guy would have such a high opinion of me as that super guy, <laughs> not just another guy. <laughs> I thought, whoa, that is so wonderful to hear. Did and you not, th you wouldn't have thought he would say that? No. What would your imagination have been? if you I'm afraid that I look way too educated that I look I'm not muscular all through growing up as a kid I was always skinny so I always wanted a bigger shoulders thicker neck stronger arms you know all that kind of stuff and and 
so as a result, I I put myself. That was self-critical. Yeah. When you asked about self-critical before, without being openly self-critical, and then I, I just never questioned myself about whether that was made me unmanly mm. or unqualified to hang out with those guys. Right. And um, you also picked a profession that your first profession is well, not yeah, seen as a manly profession, too. even though it's a pretty amazingly manly profession. Yeah, well, when I was a ballet dancer. I, people generally know that in this neighborhood. I don't keep it a secret. I like to talk about it. But but yeah, that too. It's just that more less about that and more about, well, maybe something about that, but more about physically, because you yeah. know what I look like physically. I'm not a... Well, I think of you as very handsome and tall and strong. So oh, okay. I'm also... Like when you when I was doing the math earlier and you said I was retiring in 2012 and I, and I was six and three and I'm like wait how old are you I, I, I didn't realize you were in your 70s I didn't really yeah. put that in my mind I know that of course we do celebrations and stuff together but you don't seem the contemporary to my mother really you seem younger no oh, offense okay. mom yeah well and so the reason why aging doesn't feel like the stereotype of aging for me is that I. I'm so energized by what I, what the potential for myself as a person is in aging. Like learning all these things about yourself. Learning about myself and learning how, the big thing I've learned about myself, and it comes up in, I, I get to do it in this group in a really strong way, is that when I went into the group, I had no idea that I had a big heart. And quickly in the group, because it's such a safe space, I found my way to listening to the heartfelt voice that would come up in the conversations of the group. Yeah. And I wasn't afraid to speak from that place. And oftentimes when I, oftentimes, all of the time, when in the group, when I would let this go in me, let my heart speak, I don't have any idea literally what I said. (laughs) Interesting. I can't remember the words I said. It's not the same part of yourself that no, can say those things. No. And then I'm not even sure I said anything when I finish. And then, but the response of people in the room tells me the opposite. Yeah. It's, I get a, whoa. It's funny. I think of you as very connected to loving and such. And it's funny because you... Earlier when you were talking about going with Shirley to the commons to plan the building and all that, all those meetings, just sitting there quietly and watching and experiencing and participating as a witness to their experiences. Yeah. The only way to do that in any meaningful way is to really feel it and to appreciate what they're saying and feel, it's not just about, it's curious, it's heartfelt, isn't it? Wouldn't it have been great if I knew that at the time? (laughs) Because <laughs> that's not your narrative about it. It was no, interesting. Nice no. and safe. And of course, the, that's the great thing about aging is I've now discovered that in me and I know about it and I'm confident about it. Lovely. It's not a safe thing to do as a man. It's not even about that. It's that I didn't know it. I didn't know it was there. Even though you're, as you're explaining, if you look at the stories I've told and the behaviors in the stories, it's clearly there. <laughs> Yeah, you're just not, you're not naming it that way. I didn't know it was there. Yeah. I knew it for something else. And the great thing about being at this stage of life is that starts with not needing to be, 
See, it all needs to, in, there needs to be a place, this is another thing I'm thinking about a lot lately, is I love, when I get a little bit anxious or something, one of my tricks, if you want to call it a trick, or one of my tools is to, I just tell myself, empty yourself. And I can do that. I just go empty. Like meditative kind of blank? Thoughts go away. Everything goes away. Anxiety goes away. Empty. Just be empty, I tell myself. Be empty. I did that tonight in the interview. When we started, I said, be empty. And you started. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't know if I'd have to start or you'd have to start. So I'd be emptied. Interesting. And And no thoughts, just there. I had thoughts for this interview. I made three notes that of areas that I thought, because it was about aging, I thought, well, what can I say about aging? Well, I had the first phase, which was the phase we talked about, yeah. 2012 and on. The second phase, which was my brother's crisis and how the two of us took our own paths into the future from that point, and how my current... And the third thing was spent a lot of time looking for old patterns and mm-hmm. naming them. Mm-hmm. So those are the things I made notes about. But I was tempted, I made those notes yesterday and the day before. I attempted to look at them today and I didn't. I looked at them and I didn't. I thought, I don't want to do that. I want to be empty. I know it's in there. (laughs) And so I started out empty. Maggie and I have talked a lot about the qualities you have that we admire. It's, we have a very, you've been around our house yeah. It's chaotic. It's lots of doing and things and all these, yeah. you know, engagements. And I think part of that's this desire maybe to to create things and not die or do things so you're always making or something distracting maybe. Yeah. But there's definitely a, f- a joy for me when I create. Yeah. But I we'd hang out with you in Virginia, and when you were running, I remember regularly you talk about your run and just running into a deep, yeah, I see deer sometime in yeah. raccoon and just the pattern of every day going for a run and the times and energy of that's active in being in a witness to the world and engaging. And I've, and not all it is doing. It's not like having an objective or mm-hmm. needing to create or put on a show or make a piece of furniture. It's just doing an action. Yeah. And there's something really wonderful about that. I've Anyways, we've talked about your kind of oh. Buddhist nature in some ways, how oh. we describe it. That's actually why I wanted to interview you. Not about aging. I don't know very much about Buddhism, only because it comes up and then people say what they mean. I don't know what I mean by it, really. But. Yeah, but it's, people will say, well, that's like Tao, and then Tao is, and then they <laughs> tell you what it is. And then they go, oh, okay, thank you. In your own mind, you say, oh, thanks for telling me. But But generally speaking... What I do get is that that I want to, again, this is stage of life related, because I can, I want to know myself and love myself and like myself, take good care of myself. Because if I do that, I learned in this group, then I can be of use to other people. Oh, but if I'm not healthy, then it's hard to be help someone else when they're not healthy. So that's a big lesson I've learned. Mm-hmm. Also, it shows up in the Walnut Commons thing because because I apparently because I was so attentive, not just 
being there silent, but being there so attentive that, and it was out of the fray, I appeared healthy, is maybe one way to think about it also. And that was good for the health of others who were in the fray and were really struggling right? At, with various controlling all kinds of motions, <laughs> trying to make a point, trying to get agreement. But all that the emotional torrents under some of these people were enormous and I could see them. I could see them. I can picture one person right now. How, man, they finally left. They moved into the apartment, but then they sold it. Same time as Shirley's. And I could tell they were glad to be out there. (laughs) But it's that, so I don't know if it's Buddhist, but, but it's definitely along the lines of where you need to, in order to have, in order to be, there's a real, everything opens up for me when I'm empty. If I'm not empty, if there's something in my mind or there's something sore, like my head scabs, or if I'm if I'm a resentment gets triggered or something else gets triggered, that closes the walls in real tight. And, and I like that open, being in that open space. This is the the tom that you like versus the tom, the tom you have I to like. be or something. Yeah. yeah, we're really open and patient. Patience is a big thing. I was remember when Cliss was in middle school, she was in the nature academy portion of the middle school for one year. Yeah. And the parent-teacher thing, I go and they, you know, they have virtues. I call them virtues. I call them something else. But single word ideals on the wall, like truth and honesty and... Integrity. And, integrity. And, yeah. and all of a sudden there was the word patience. And I'd never seen that in that list of words in that situation before. And that always stuck with me. I thought, wow, that's a good one. I do a trial a lot of patience also. So openness and patience is a magic cocktail. And it's what you're working on and recognizing when you yeah. don't have those things. Yeah. When things are hard to figure out, my first place is to go to, well, two places. There's two things I live with all, every day. One is op- stay open, be patient. And the other one is uh, curiosity instead of criticism. Yeah. So stay open, be patient. And if you feel criticism coming up, Look at that and be curious about it. You know, what is that about, really? I, I'm not as sarcastic as I used to be. Yeah? Yeah, sarcasm is just a really nasty kind of criticism. Yeah, it's like a funny whatever. judgment kind of thing. It's, a, it's not funny. It's, yeah. It seems very clever, and it's funny because it's so clever and it's such a smart thing. But what's really going on is is a real hurtful kind of sadness thing going on. And you don't make a point, and you're bound to have hurt somebody. But it's not such a deep hurt that you'll hear about it or see it. Right. You'll be brushed off. You'll be brushed off, yeah. And I don't want to live like that. So... There's a lot of that around Shirley and with Lee and her when they get going. That used to drive me crazy. But that, because of that example. Sure. Of what I'm talking Tell about. you what you're talking yeah. about. You, you've never really been a very sarcastic person, I don't think. Oh, I'm not. I can keep up with people when we get into sarcasm. But I used to keep up with them in the group. Sure. And then I would just get tired of it because I thought, this isn't fun for me because it's cruel. 
It's mean. It's just mean. It's not cruel. It's mean. <laughs> My kids like to be mean with each other sometimes. Well, yeah. It's like in, in in teenage years, sarcasm is that was my. I remember when I was in high school, I was. That's when I discovered sarcasm and cynicism, because they're both the same thing, where your intellect creates something that's biting and funny, critical, criticizes something or somebody or some idea has a bite of criticism, but it's funny. So you get away with it. Yeah. And that's like really admired in high school, that ability to be funny and mean at the same time. I think it's interesting. I think <laughs> when as I was you, growing up. Yeah, no, I agree. I, me too. At that younger age, I, I liked that a lot. It was, yeah. I was good at it and it felt good, good to be good it. at it. Yeah, yeah. it felt good. I, I think I'd actually be better at it now, but it's cheap. It is cheap. It's, there's nothing. It's Well, it's nothing really. It's, it's just mean and it's nothing because whatever point you're trying to make is not being made <laughs> because of the meanness of it and the humor of it. They both get in the way of being communicated. It's a poor way to communicate. You don't communicate. You just pull triggers and make people um, question your truthfulness. With all this kind of growth you've been experiencing relatively in the last couple of years, is that because of your brother's experience in recovery? No. there, There was other episodes in my life, throughout my life, where I was led me to being very introspective and led me to be in a professional setting where you could get some insights as a result of the professional setting. But it's never been so sustained. And I've always enjoyed it. I've always thought it was a great benefit. But then you just go back to being the person you need to be with right. a little bit. But yeah, yeah, you need more insights about yourself. Right. But again, the big chance for me in retirement is that I get to... S- do something I enjoy doing anyway, which is this introspection, and have the opportunity to be with people and be led to books and things that are helpful. And I enjoy doing it. I I grew up very prayerful, Catholic, altar boy. If I died as a child, I'd have gone straight to heaven. There's no question about it. Was put on a track to become a priest. And so it, in there's something that, around the quiet and introspection of prayer in the Catholic Church, because it's very quiet and introspective, even though you're in a group, you're very much alone Hmm. in Catholic Church. That fits in with what I'm talking about. So there's a kind of emotional and psychological ease as a result, Yeah, I think. Do you pray regularly? No, but there's spirits I talk to. Like Rosemary Purser is one. I mentioned her earlier. She yeah. was the person I called and said no to and called back and said yes. She was a big fan of mine and and always took my side when it got challenged in the early years because Ellen and I were constantly challenged by people who wanted us out. And she still is somebody you go she to? She died for- quite some time ago and um, in the 90s. And I don't know, her spirit's very strong for me. Yeah, so I, I I do that yeah. kind of thing. And again, that's comfortable because it's how I grew up. I don't even question it. You know, people are like, really? And I think, yeah, really. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> yeah, there are saints, there are spirits, they're there, and yeah, that's how you process I, stuff. I have some that are always there for me. I know it. I'm respectful of their attention, and I don't pray too much, so to speak. Hmm. Only... 
go there when I think there'd be a real interest in my being there. And that you might be able to get some guidance or some learnings or share your learnings? My parents um, used to come and visit. They would make road trips, get in the car, drive until they tire and stop, go across the country, zigzag everywhere, and always include me somewhere, wherever I was. And so when I was in Santa Cruz, I was living in the valley by that time. And they came for their visit, and um, they went to the natural bridges and look at the butterflies. And I met them there, and I walked them back to their car, and their car was gone. And at first we thought, oh, you, know, you thought you that's not where you parked it. Well, it was, and it got stolen. And they were like, they were really, they didn't, it was just so bizarre for them. They didn't, they were, could barely handle it. And so realized we had drive them to their hotel and start to do whatever you do to try to find your car. And basically the police reports and all that, but you're not going to find your car. Right. Everybody said, oh, it's in Watsonville somewhere, you know, something like prejudicial like that. Especially in the 90s, it's, people said things like that out loud. For the, and, last, for the last hundred years, people have said that between Santa Cruz yeah, and Watsonville. Yeah, it's ridiculous. They were really bent out. I was really suffering their suffering. And so I asked Rosemary when I was driving back, home I said just show me where it is the next morning I felt stronger to get in the car I drive over to where New Leaf is now on the west side it wasn't there then mm-hmm. that was this neighborhood so I don't know what it was industrial or industrial, something industrial yeah still kind of is. And I started to drive down that street I think it's called Fair maybe mm-hmm. and something told me turn left I turn left and there's the car on the, parked on the curb on the curb, like parked wrong. Well, <laughs> against the curb, but up on the curb a little right, bit. Right, There's right. no sidewalk or anything in that particular part. But up on the curb, not on the grass. There's a little cement thing there. And I thought, oh, my God. Yeah, there's no cell phones or anything. I went to a pay phone to call them to tell them I found your car. <laughs> and they didn't believe it. I said, it's your car, broken glass and all that. And so I'm waiting for them to come with, I guess they took a cab. Maybe the police picked them up. I don't know can't remember that part too well. But they came and got the car, and they were angry, but they had the car back. Yeah. That was so Rosemary really, guided you to that? Totally. There's no question about it. Yeah. I, no question. <laughs> so that's my... I have another concrete example where my grandfather was the spirit. But that's my Santa Cruz one. There's no question. That's great. None. Well, I did not know that you've been going through a transformation in that way. I knew, like, when we were talking about retirement earlier, I just was always impressed with you hitting all the shows and all the museums and seeing everything. You're like, oh, yeah, I did that. That was great. You should do that. Just over and over. <laughs> like, How does Tom see all these things? But I didn't also know it was about personal growth. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, you, what I'm seeing over and over again is, like what you said, is that I discovered I have a big heart and that if I go to my heart, that people come with me immediately. And everything you hope, will be there, like trust and friendship and whatever. And and then I start seeing that in other people too. I think, well, what is it like in Lyle that if you just go to empty, what's there? And I don't have the answer to it, but I think about it. Let me know if you figure it out. Yeah, I will. I mean, there's some things, you started talking about a little bit, the 
doing of things, the making of things, all that's interesting to me. But that's not what draws me to you. And so that's the question, is what mm. draws me to you? And I know you've been thinking about a lot. I just, I don't know this, but I know it without you telling me it, that you work, you've been working a lot on yourself and understanding things in your life that are hard to figure out. Yeah. Like your relationship with Diana, I imagine, is one of them. Raising teenagers, that has to be part of it. Or being in the house with teenagers. I shouldn't say raising TJ. Because I know you don't raise TJ. Mm -hmm. You don't raise anything. You feed them. Yeah. (laughs) Well, in so many ways that you won't know now for sure that I'm just finding out now. And there's nothing you can do about that. You just have to do your best. So that's the part I see in you right now, is I see an effort that's really generous and kind to yourself so that you can be generous and kind to others, is one way I would put it. But I'm just looking. I don't, you haven't said anything to me and I haven't asked. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's what I look for. What is it? Like, if you didn't have a festival next year, what would still be there? Oh, nice. That's the question I'm that's good. asking of myself when I look at other people. Because you're not going to... The things you see in your life now, if you live long, won't be there later. Hmm. So what I want to know is what's there now and what's there later, too. And because that's the different thing that you fill the world with life. That's what it is. It's not the blacksmithing. You do that for different reasons. That's not the reason I see you for you. <laughs> well, thank you, Tom. You're welcome. Good, co- this is amazing conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank fantastic. You. You're welcome. Likewise. I feel like we need to spend more time doing this with each other. This kind of connection. It's so common it for us to talk about the issues of the day or the stress of the day, but to really get to a what our hopes are, what our how we're changing what we're working on. It's rare that we do that with people. Yeah, well, you have to feel safe. Yeah. And life isn't set up that way to feel safe. (laughs) We're too busy being the people we're supposed to be. I feel I know you well enough that I can open up and I'm not, I feel totally safe. I don't worry about anything. Do you feel okay about all the things we've talked about today actually being shared with other people? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay, good. Yeah, What a great journey. Well, okay. okay. I, I like the idea of retirement. When can I have some? Good, because since my retirement, because of my age group, frequently we'll run into someone who's thinking of retiring or, or is going to retire and they're not sure what they're going to do. <laughs> and you shake them and say, do it now. <laughs> and Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. I do. And they, they don't believe me at first. And then if we meet again, um, it comes up again. Usually on the second meeting, they'll start to hear what I'm trying to say. Have you told Ellen this? I'm afraid to tell Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> you, like the, you like what she's doing, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but I, I do. 
get it. And I feel for her because she's definitely in that space where I was for if no other reason, just because of longevity in the role. You know, you're at a very high level of performance. You're way up the learning curve. In her case, she's widely respected. There's a lot of expectations around you. Keep it going. And yeah. You're so valued. But then there's the internal situation of, like, how much longer can I do this? So I've never, I haven't actually talked to her directly about it. But, you know, that's got to be there. That's just how life is. It's a stage of life thing. Yeah. Thanks for doing this with me. You're welcome.